Welcome to the School of the Forest podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Russell. This podcast aims to educate you about outdoor living skills, give you a first-person approach to wilderness ecology, and provide you with a glimpse into the different methods people are using for sustainable living. To find out more about our programs, please visit schoolofforest.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the second part of my conversation with Bob Henderson. Um, if you haven't listened to the first part, I suggest you go and do that before we jump into this one. Bob and I are going to talk about his time in Norway and how his growing understanding of Freelitzleve influenced his work as a guide and outdoor educator. It's a really, really cool part of the conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I ta- I'd, love, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your time in Norway and a little bit more about that the cultural differences you were talking about in I mean, you, you, you touched on it briefly, but if you, um, if you have anything else to add about that, any observations, um, I, I, I think we'd love to hear about them. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a really big topic. So I just have a few sort of anecdotal experiences. Um, when we were working on the Nature First book, uh, one of the uh, key at the time, uh, freelessly uh, scholars and writers only wrote in Norwegian, so a fellow named Andy Brooks, an Australian guy, a really uh, crackerjack uh, intellectual, uh, he recorded all of uh, this fellow's, and he's in Nature First, this is Berga Dolly, and he, uh, he listened to Berga and he um, put it into English, if you will. And uh, one of the passages that I've always loved, and it, it's actually in a book that I've just finished uh, this, uh, this week, uh, with, uh, it's another co-edited book, um, but we pulled it, that's why it came to my mind, we pulled it from Nature First for this other book. And Berger was talking about uh, magazines like um, Outside or in Canada, a Paddler or, you know, there's a whole slew of them. And uh, they're great magazines and some of them still hold on to those long essays that are really informative. And I'm not, I'm not talking so much about Orion or a magazine like that. I'm, I'm talking about a, you know, a hardcore uh, outdoor magazine. And um, and I, I would never have thought this, you know, but Berga Dolly essentially said, uh, you know, I look at this outside magazine and some of these um, other magazines that are coming out of Europe and, and American Canada, and, you know, and here's the quote, I just, I see a lot of nature acrobats and narcissistic journalists. Yeah. And uh, I haven't been able to uh, break out of that milieu. In other words, when he said that, I went, oh my God. And so now I look at, uh, those magazines, and I write in some of those magazines, but I, I look at them through through that lens, you know, and I, you know, I, I think he's right. And I don't think it's necessarily because that's the way all the authors think. I think there's a, in essence, a formula. Uh, and uh, if I can be bold, and I know I'm doing, being bold, I think we've dumbed down the population. In other yeah. words, we said, well, this this is what they want. So give them thrills and chills and epic stuff that they can't do. I've called it, uh, look at me, you can't do this bravado literature. And, and uh, let's fill these magazines with this stuff that people will love to read. And, you know, maybe I'm completely off base here, but I like to think that there's a big whack of population that would love to read something else. Yeah. As well, not exclusive as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. um, The, uh, you know, I'm thinking about that. I, I think that 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 idea you're talking about existed for a long time. I 
again, I'm going to go back to Nansen because he's, since I was probably 12, he's sort of been my hero. Um, but he, um, you know, reading his books versus some of the other sort of polar explorers at the time, um, he spends a ton of time talking about like the preparation that he did. Like he goes into so much detail about that stuff and he's doing these big, crazy things, but he, you know, he talks, he talks a lot about, um, you know, how all the little stuff built up to that. And there's not a lot of like shock value in his writing. And then you go and look at some of the other polar explorers. The one that comes to mind is like Shackleton, which was an amazing, an amazing undertaking, but what people wanted to read about was how harrowing it was. Um, and, you know, if you, to me, when we have students show up and we start talking about polar exploration, a lot of them know about Shackleton, not a lot of them know about Nansen. And it's, and I think it's because he didn't write or express himself in a way that was focused on that, that doom and gloom approach. And that's, that's fascinating to me that, that, that it's, it's kind of been, uh, uh, like focused down into something that's even more extreme in the modern world. It's, it's yeah. really interesting. Well put it here. So you, we were the, the, uh, the uh, framing for this set part of our discussion is tell you some Norwegian stories. So one yeah. was that way of looking at the literature as an expression of cultural difference, because there is a much more intense focus on uh, access for the whole population. Um, and then another story that I just was told um, comes out of um, the early days of the creation of ski clubs and uh, hut clubs in the 1890s. And there's a story of the first president of, um, I guess the first ski touring club. And um, there was a lot of things went wrong on that trip and it was harrowing, as you said, the word harrowing. And, it was, there was basically it was a big risk fest, you know, and um, the members of the club looked at this guy who was their president and kicked them out. <laughs> Said this isn't the this isn't the kind of trip we want. God, I've always thought that was wonderful. Um, yeah, you know, because he, he would be valorized perhaps in our in our context in a Shackleton way. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So they they kicked them out. And then there's this notion of um, in education in in a Nor I'm just kind of popping out with Norwegian stories, you know. Another one is um, the notion of and we're starting to so culture moves and we're starting to embrace this in North America the the free play idea. So there's a, a much greater tendency to introduce school children to knives, for example, in most programs in outdoor education, uh, kids aren't learning skills that they need like like using knives and axes you can't really be in the bush in a three-day storm and get a good fire going you know without some kind of tool but there are no tools being taught uh, tool use being taught because it's dangerous well it's dangerous because you haven't taught people how to use it so in scandinavia they have a notion around tumbling and fumbling which is a way of saying people need to work to the limits of their own security um, so if you're, you're in a boulder field, let's say, and you want people to experience that, you know, let's say there's been a big landslide 300, you know, uh, uh, 600 years ago, and these rocks are all settled, and you want people to move around in the rocks, you can play the game of sardines, where one kid goes and hides, and everybody moves at their own pace, as slow as they want to, 
and they find that person and they join them until there's one person left and everybody has a great laugh and they shout it out and that person finds them. That's the game of sardines. That's really different than playing, um, you know, capture the flag or, sure. or hide and seek in the same boulder field. That would be dangerous and stupid because it forces kids to work outside their comfort zone with their own movement in the rocks. So the Norwegians have this figured out and they, they allow people to, let's say, tumble and fumble, which is probably a great Norwegian word for this. But, and, and so we're starting to do this more in North America. There is a movement towards free unstructured play. I didn't grow up with it. Uh, but anyway, it, it's, that's just another Norwegian story. I've got one more in my head for you. So do you think, do you think that, that idea of tumbling and fumbling, so one of the sort of stories I grew, I, me and my, all my siblings grew up with a lot of, a lot of sort of folklore and stuff like that. And the, the biggest one was the, uh, the Askeladden, the, the Ashlad. And I think you have, I think you have a chapter on In Nature First about him, but this idea of, um, so that the, the basic premise of this sort of folklore character is he's this kid that's sort of always playing in the ashes and embers of a fire and kind of seeing what happens when he does other things. Um, and that, I, I wonder if there's something to that, you know, if that's sort of a, if that's one of, if that's a story that you're hearing a lot as a kid, you're, you're encouraged to kind of, you know, you put it perfectly, this free play idea, this idea of, um, uh, hang on, I have to, there's a quote in Nature First that's great about this. Uh, yeah, so the, the Ashlad is fascinated by the process, process, how nothing is constant and how he can kindle and rekindle the process, but never control it. But he learns a lot of what can be useful if he is only attentive and open to everything happening around him in nature and in society. So this idea that you're, you're kind of, you're allowed to just figure out what, what your limits are and what other people and places around you's limits are. And that's, that's amazing. And I, I don't think it's limited to children either. I, I watch, um, I've watched adults experience the same thing of, literally playing with the embers and understanding how, how fire works or whatever it is that they're working with. And they, they kind of learn, you give them a, a framework of a skill, you know, you mentioned like knives and axes and stuff. You give them a framework and a set of like, kind of a few simple rules that keep them safe. But after that, they're kind of building this, this muscle memory and this kind of language for whatever it is they're doing that allows them to have that growth on their own rather than by you giving them some dogmatic thing that they should always do. And that's, that's amazing to me. And I, to think yeah. about, to think about um, more people being exposed to that is, is sort of awe inspiring to me to have more people that are kind of aware of their own sort of sense of boundaries and, and not needing to, you know, capture the flag was a great example of not needing to, play outdoors by competing, but just kind of tumble and fumble. I like that. I like that a lot. And I, my, I was with a, a group of students in Norway, sitting around the campfire with a 20, you know, 30 year old young, young teacher. And uh, he, the student, they were just chatting, you know, I was playing guitar over on the side and, and it was just free form stuff. Uh, anything goes. Um, in the, around the campfire and they said, well, what did you do today? Well, I was actually teaching in, in elementary school as a guest and we were working with knives and a child uh, cut her finger and we had to take her to the hospital. And 
my students were aghast, you know, anyway. Oh, no, no big deal. We bandaged it up. No, just a, just a little cut, not a big deal. How, how is she ever going to learn to use a knife if, you know, it, it was just so matter of fact for this Norwegian uh, educator and so out of whack entirely for my students. It was one of the highlights of the entire uh, field trip, which was, you know, two weeks for me. I sure. just, I just thought it was fantastic. And um, uh, so the last story in a Norwegian way that I'd love to share, and it is in the Nature First book, and captures, in, encapsulates a, a lot. I've spent time in a particular region of Norway with a friend uh, whose name is Berga Dali. And it's almost like an action research project. Um, it became identified that fewer families were getting out to the huts. And this is the Norwegian Trekking Association hut system where they have over 500 huts in the country and, uh, that are uh, huts where you can, rustic huts, which are uh, bare bones, um, semi-rustic huts where they supply food and uh, there's a propane stove and a wood, wood stove. And then um, huts, which are more like uh, lodges and hotels. So they were identifying that uh, these distances between huts typically are 15 to 25 kilometers, let's say. And it was too much uh, for the family. So, uh, the, and, and it was identified that this local community weren't traveling as much in the mountains as it was hoped. <laughs> so they built, I say they, the community uh, with good leadership built three huts, 5K apart. And they built rustic huts because they, to quote uh, Berga, you know, because I think people like the rustic, you know. And so by the rustic huts, they were modeled after, after blessed houses because in the high country, they'd found uh, an archeological site of what a quote, a blessed house was, which was basically a house from pilgrimage, pil from pilgrims on a pilgrimage, trying to get to a Northern church. So they, they modeled the house out of something from, I don't know, 1200, you know, and, and uh, they built these fantastic huts and they did it so that people would, would families would uh, have better access to the wilds. But then they identified that the really young kids probably aren't like they're just getting out for a couple of hours on skis. So they built posts with a box and in the box was a log book. And this became the destination for the wee ones. So they could, the family could, you know, stop and have the chocolate and the cheese, you know, and have a place to a destination. And then they'd write in the box in, in the uh, log book in the box, they'd write that they'd been there. And, and then they would record that. And at the end of the season in the community hall, they'd have a bit of a party and they'd acknowledge that uh, what kids had, had, had been out for skis that winter. And it That's was all, amazing. It was all part of this um, incredible uh, uh, joy of being outside there's something to be had there that's important to the human spirit. And how do we encourage, encourage it? Uh, and they just built some new huts closer together. And that's become an area that has become known as the children's world of nature. And, you know, that was the impetus of a community in the uh, 1990s. Uh, and so when I went in 2000, um, this was the area that we were in. And I was, you know, just incredibly taken with it. 
and thought, wow, that is a, a, a cultural difference uh, in, in a significant way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so many of the, uh, like the places to hike around here in Vermont are, you know, when, when somebody asks for hiking recommendations, um, you know, they ask, they often are asking about, you know, which one's the hardest, which one's the best view, which one's, where am I going to have the most intense experience? Um, but to have something like that set up where it's, so we have this thing that we talk about a lot with canoe trips, which is this idea of, um, you know, modern day canoeing in, well, modern day canoeing with, it's sort of like an adventure sport and it's about like the lightest gear you can carry and everybody wants a really small boat. Um, but if you think about people that were living out of those boats, they're, they're not just, you know, on a lot of our trips, they're young people that are relatively fit and can go and do this crazy thing. But the reality of human existence has always been, you always have like grandma who can't see or an infant or, you know, somebody's along with you that, that maybe can't keep up. And, and there's such a disconnect from, I think, sort of like natural, natural, like humanity to, to not be thinking about the whole group and what they can get out of what we're doing, as opposed to like me and my three buddies, we're climbing Mount Washington tomorrow. It's going to be minus 20. It's going to be so intense. We're going to have a great time. We're going to get to the top of the mountain and we're going to take a selfie and hike down and be done. It's just, it's so awesome to hear that there are other that's not the case everywhere. Um, that's really I'm good thinking, to hear. I'm thinking, yeah, that, that good example of, uh, I do worry about the selfie, but that's another, to that's another topic. But, you know, I, I'm thinking of uh, one of these huts, uh, Haverstolen, and I was there with a group of two or three families, and there were really young kids. There were kids in, in uh, backpacks, and there were kids that were just walking. It's funny to think about it now. The kids were in uh, the latest... Uh, uh, high-end Gore-Tex jackets, but but Grandma was on the trip just to pick up on what you were saying, and Grandma was was a pretty fit Grandma, I'll tell you, at, at uh, probably late seventies, and uh, Grandma's wearing a garbage bag because she she really never had good clothes anyway. It was you know pouring rain, you know, <laughs> right? And the the um, you referred to the Ashkeladden thing, and that's a it's a really interesting topic. Um, the uh, the ash the ashlad is also called the ashlad, and the ashlad is connected to. Uh, I've done a bit of work on this, and I've read books outside of Norwegian uh, literature on this. I'm thinking of one called Tales of the Enchantment. Uh, Bruno, somebody, if people know it, uh, last name says like Bethenhall or something, and uh, he makes the connection to the Norwegian ashlad as being the cinder lad or a male Cinderella. And there is a genre of literature that's, that's a, um, a folklore literature that is sibling rivalry stories. Mm -hmm. So Ashlad is, is a cinder, is a, is a Cinderella. Yeah. Um, so to put some cultural meat on this, the foot binding concept in the Cinderella, sorry, I wrecked my, I gave you the punchline first. The notion of the dainty foot of Cinderella, as the stories told by Disney, let's say, dates back to the concept of that story being a Chinese story with foot binding. I mean, this wow. is crazy. Yeah, stuff. it's it's 
that's incredible. So the, the endurance of these kind of stories in the culture is really interesting. And usually the Ashkeladden, like Cinderella, is the third son who apparently is more a little dim-witted as perceived by the elder siblings, who somehow manages to do great things and win people over. Now in the Norwegian context, it means outwitting trolls. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, my, I, so I grew up and my, uh, my three brothers and I were always referred to as the, the three little trolls. That was a, a big part of my, so we were the ones that were being outwitted most of the time. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a, a big part of my life. And it, it was, yeah, it's fascinating. Sorry, go and on. I, and I will, because a common thing to the Cinderella story, uh, as it's typically told, and to the Ashkeladden story uh, that Norwegians love, is in many Norwegian traditional homes and, and huts, the, the hearth is in the corner of the room built into the house. And there is this notion of the third and um, poor uh, lesser sibling, the, the youngest, gains their wisdom by, by working the fire. And uh, there's a, a quoting a fellow Sigmund Crawley centering that, that they gain a kind of um, complexity in their life because they work the fire. And uh, I mean, I use camp stoves when I need to, and I embrace the camp stove, but boy, I know that I'm losing an element of complexity and, and a, a kind of beneficial burden. I'm writing a paper right now with a, a Australian and um, New Zealand fellow for a book. And our paper is about the beneficial burden of certain technologies. Like, mm. like for example, we don't tend to think of the canoe and the snowshoe as technology anymore. Technologies, you know, the, the printing the machine, the computer, the cell phone. But um, so too is the reflector oven and the camp stove and the fire. Yeah. And um, we just don't want educators to lose, I'm particularly thinking of a winter camping context now, that joyous beneficial burden of hard work that connects means and ends. That, that joy of knowing that, that you need this fire for warmth and you have to gather wood, you have to work for it, but it's a burden, but it's so beneficial compared to the ambient heat that we tend to have in our houses. You know, it's, it's, it's so sort of a, a kismet thing happening right now. I just, this last weekend I had students out for my year long program. They come out for one weekend a month for a year and then go up on this crazy canoe trip. But this, uh, this past weekend was their open fire exercise. They slept in front of an open fire with um, shelters they built themselves. They put up all the wood that they needed. And that exactly what you're talking about, that the beneficial burden that you're talking, that phrase is so good. Um, they, you know, they've been out with me for close to six months now, and they've got a lot of these skills, but that that sort of removal of anything other than what's exactly necessary taught. I think they learned more in that in their time in front of the open fire than they learned in six months of like actual instruction, because you just, you just build this sense of, you know, how to space the fuel. So it's burning the right way. And all this, all these other crazy things that there's just no way they could have learned um, if they were, you know, in a hot tent with a wood stove. That's, 
that's so so fitting that you brought that up. It's amazing. Yeah, the, you know, I, I used to take students. Uh, one of our classes, uh, I would have sixty students at the university, and I was explaining. It, sort of, it doesn't matter so much what the course was about, but one of the units was what is eco psychology as a concept. And very briefly, eco-psychology is the notion that there is a latent re religious impulse for the earth within the human species. So, you know, you don't produce uh, this, it's, it's embedded in the person. And, and that's, a, that's a notion, that's a theory. It's very useful to outdoor educators. You don't create and produce this stuff, you, you draw it out. There's already an innate love for the loon call, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to teach it and uh, my colleague, uh, Liz Newbery, had this great idea. Says, well, why don't we just take everybody on a hike? Just, just go out. And, you know, that's a little unheard of on a university campus with 60 students midweek, you know. Uh, but we did. And um, we, we had a three-hour block. But the, the joy, the, the real piece de resistance here was right in the middle of it, we uh, had a campfire. Now, this is totally illegal, but uh, that's okay. Um, we, we, we lay down a, a big stone and we lit a campfire on the path. We chose a place where people tended not to be and uh, right in, right in the city. Um, and we, we, we told animal stories and I specifically said, Hey, you know, we, we, we'd, we'd uh, read some poetry. We'd play a guitar song. And then I basically say, let's tell some stories. Anybody got any good animal stories? And people told stories. Now, the point of all that is we were doing eco-psychology, we weren't talking about it. And when it was all said and done, I said to the students, okay, now you're, you're going to walk up the hill. First of all, if you don't have another class, I don't know why you just don't keep walking and go on another longer hike. But if you do have to get back to class, I gotta make sure you have time to get up the hill and you know uh, get onto campus and get across campus if you need to. So we're, we'll pack it in now. But I know that some of you are going to walk on campus and tell other students that this wacko prof you have went for a hike and we sat around a campfire and told animal stories. So let me just say this. Those, that's sitting around the campfire telling animal stories is what people, what, what the human species has been doing for thousands upon thousands of years. We have only been sitting in lectures halls and been told what we should know for a very, very short period of time. So you may call it a bit wacko, call it unconventional, but I'll tell you this, it's traditional. Yeah. We've just done something very traditional to the human spirit. And I think of it as good education. You might think of it as wacko, but that's just because you've been too contextualized by conventional schooling. And it, it, it defused any notion of this being uh, almost an unacceptable practice. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I don't want to lose track of how all that I just described with Ashkeladen and, and that notion of the beneficial burden um, around technology. You know, we're, we're having this conversation because we're talking about fearlessly overlaying our thoughts. Right. We would be talking about something else if we were talking about uh, the most efficient gear for the trail. Right, absolutely. It's just not that important to a free love sleep context. No. Free love sleep is saturated in values and, and this kind of thinking. 
Thanks so much for listening to this second part of my conversation with Bob. We'll be back next week with the final part of this conversation. And we're going to talk a lot about Arna Nas and a lot of the big influences on uh, Bob and I as uh, freelance leavers, if you will. Um, it's a really cool and probably the most exciting part of the conversation for me. So I hope we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the School of the Forest podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, I hope you share it with a few friends. If you did like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any other of the major podcast hosting platforms. And lastly, if you'd like to learn more about School of the Forest programs, please check us out at schooloftheforest.com and get in touch with us at any of the contact information you'll find on that site. Thanks, 